Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. We must believe in everything because we know so little. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Jesse Elliott. Jesse is the Director of Creative Ecosystems for Cash. That's the Creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange. He's a lifelong champion of collaborative social entrepreneurship, the power of multimedia and storytelling, and inclusive arts and artist resourcing. He's a founder and songwriter for two rock and roll bands who released six albums and performed live over 1,200 times in a decade, from South by Southwest and Glastonbury to Lollapalooza and your favorite local dive. A proud graduate of the University of Iowa, Jesse has penned books and speeches with economist Richard Florida. He's helped research and author music strategies for the city of Denver and the state of Colorado, and has served the Bohemian Foundation as its founding director of the Music District. We talk about his work with economist Richard Florida, the building of creative collaborations and creative ecosystems, and the simple power of collaboration that can be fueled by as little as cheap pizza and cold beer. We dig into the early days of the James Gang collaboration, as well as Jesse's work on regional music strategies. We briefly touch on Jack Kerouac's affinity for Iowa and how he may have mistaken Des Moines for Iowa City. I encourage you to check out Jesse's TEDx talk linked in the episode description as he discusses music ecosystems and the remixing of community. It was an honor having Jesse join me on the show. I appreciate how he credits and shares the positive influence that mentors have had on his journey as well as the importance of free, accessible spaces for everyone to enjoy. I thank Jesse for sharing his time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode, and I hope I have an opportunity to have Jesse back on the podcast so that we might explore ways to bring the Bad Ideas Memorial Hall to life or simply hang out at the restaurant at the end of the universe. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so good to so good to be here, Matt. Um, I uh, first came across Iowa City in the year 1999. Well, I suppose I was introduced to it a couple of times before then, uh, especially in literature. Uh, we can talk more about that later, but. Um, I got there as a freshman at the University of Iowa in 99 and um, spent the next four years there off and on, spent some time in Mexico in between, but then I uh, came back in, gosh, 2004 or 2005 to, to live there for another year and work with Chris Merrill of the um, International Writing Program. And then I would say I've just sort of stayed in touch with the place for uh, many years since then, kind of passing back and forth on tour and, and a couple different rock and roll bands and playing there and always going and hanging out at the Meggers, the Meggers farm on the edge of town, and, uh, which true Iowa insiders will, will know something about. And, uh, yeah, just in general, keeping in touch with folks from there it was, it was honestly several of the best years of my life. So it's hard to uh, ever leave it completely behind. I'm, I'm just always drawn back. Great. Thank you. And what initially brought you to Iowa? Was it 
were you getting a, a writing related degree? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I had four in a row really amazing creative writing teachers in high school, actually, which which is somewhat surprising because I went to a pretty um, maybe like rough and tumble would be a fair way to put it, kind of public public school in Northern Illinois. And I just had these great um, teachers from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds and ages and whatnot. And, and one thing in common is that they all had touched on the University of Iowa at one point in their lives or another. Um, Carol Morrison in particular was a, was a good friend of um, Tess Gallagher and you know had crossed paths with uh, Raymond Carver and, and, and lots of folks in that kind of circle. Um, and then I think I might be misremembering this, but she she introduced me to a really great Chicago poet um, named uh, Lee Young Lee, and and he that was maybe in my junior or senior year of high school in Illinois, and and he just he was a hero of mine and still is, um, and he sort of went off about how great Iowa was as a as a as a place as a to think and create and and be one with the land and all of that fun poetry stuff. Oh, that's that's great. Now, uh, you you have a lot of different things that you you do when you introduce yourself to somebody or if somebody asks kind of a question. What do you do? How do you respond to that? What do you what do you lead with? It depends who the person is, you know. <laughs> it's usually uh, tailored to any particular audience. That's that's one thing that you that you learn in the rock and roll life is like you gotta you gotta take the other folks in the room into account uh, in any any dialogue you enter into. Um, but yeah, you know, I generally say some some form of you know I'm from the northern Midwest, and and that's always been my uh, original stomping grounds. Grew up mostly in. Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, um, went to school in Iowa, obviously. Um, my, my parents and my sister now live in Minneapolis, so that uh, is really fertile ground as well. And, you know, from there, uh, went to Mexico for a while, lived in Europe a couple different times and a couple different places, lived on the East Coast, um, but have kind of always been drawn back to somewhere in the middle of the country. So, I uh, have been in living mostly full-time, although traveling around the world for the last nine years in Colorado. And then I just uh, recently moved about six months ago to Arkansas. Um, so there's some kind of constellation of, you know, Mississippi and and sort of Great Plains and Rocky Mountains uh, geography that has always attracted me back. But you can't, you can't drift too far from the Mississippi River, right? That's right. That's right. It grew, I mean, I mean, my formative years driving back and forth across that amazing bridge in the Quad Cities, you know, between Illinois and Iowa, I, I had some had some epic road trips. And, and I think I was sort of set up for that by um, reading way too much of the of the beats, the beat writers when I was like a 14 year old yeah. kid. Again, great, you know, public high school creative writing teachers. They were like, why don't you check these crazy people out? And uh, there's quite a bit of driving back and forth on I-80 in, in, in those. Yeah, and Kerouac does have a very romanticized version of Iowa, right? The describes the pieces of pie getting bigger and the ice cream getting richer. And I think he even described the most beautiful women in the world from Des Moines were all yeah, part of I, his. <laughs> I, I honestly, I will tell you all joking aside, I always told people like, I think Kerouac was confused because the way that that passage <laughs> reads, I think he was actually pulling off in Iowa City. Uh, 
And so the most beautiful women in the world are actually from Iowa City. Uh, <laughs> although no disrespect to Des Moines. There's no, none, really, but yeah. <laughs> there's people who are beautiful on the inside and the outside in, in Des Moines as well. And all right. across the state, of course. I, I love that interpretation. I love it. Where'd you, li where'd you live in Europe? Uh, I was in the Netherlands for a stint working at a world court there, which actually, believe it or not, was sort of writing related. Um, and then I was in uh, Copenhagen for a bit doing uh, basically a human rights um, research fellowship, which also, I, in my mind, ties back to kind of writing and, and storytelling. Thank you. Some of the things I wanted I want to dig into. So while you're at Iowa, too, you also got involved with a or uh, help you help build a nonprofit while you were here. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, no, I think the I think the warrants for our arrest are all, you know, um, outdated <laughs> at this point. I'm, I'm happy to talk freely about the James gang. Um, it was just a, yeah, it was just a really good collection of, of humans. Um, one of whom you've talked with pretty recently on your podcast, a fellow named Andy Stoll, who uh, is, is another very close friend. And we've crisscrossed paths over the years, we sort of drift in and out of each other's lives, along with you know, Mike Brooks and David Strachany and just all these amazing people, Amanda Styron um, that were there sort of at the formation, the Meggers who I mentioned earlier, yeah. Forrest and Georgette uh, Meggers, more fine Iowans. Um, and uh, yeah, it was our, I don't remember what year it was, maybe sophomore year, yeah. but several of us lived in a house. Um, how's this for street cred? We lived in Iowa City, Iowa, on Iowa Avenue by the Iowa River, attending the University of Iowa. So it didn't get much more Iowa than that. But eight, eight, I, sorry, eight, I love it. I love it. what. But one of my personal pet peeves is that uh, Iowa City is in Johnson County, that there right. is an Iowa County. But I, I, I just wish we could have had the naming convention all the way through. It would have been like a triple double or whatever <laughs> for me. But yeah, missed missed out on that one. But. Um, but no, we had this amazing house, 820 Iowa Avenue, which was really just our sort of hangout. Um, and eventually that hangout, you, you know, we added some some beers and some airliner pizza and some um, late night shenanigans into the mix. And pretty soon all of these 19 and 18 and 20 and 17 and whatever year old kids were like, let's start a nonprofit. It seemed like a good idea over pizza and beer. Oh, that's that's great! Yeah, and it was it was a pleasure having uh, Andy on the uh, on the podcast, and I appreciate you being here too because uh, it's through that connection that I got to know of you a little bit. Want to dig into the writing a little bit? I, one of the things that you uh, were a speechwriter and writer for Richard Florida. Yeah, that's right. Who who I met in Iowa. Um, <laughs> Again, a good good connection there. We because of the James Gang, the work that we did, and and I won't go on about that for right now yeah. because I, I haven't listened to Andy's podcast yet because I didn't want it to sort of soil my own, <laughs> my own retelling of all the uh, all the stories that we've cooked up over the years. But um, uh, one of the parts, the work that we did basically landed us kind of a seat at the table at this thing called the Des Moines Unconference, uh, which would have been in two thousand one or two thousand two. Um, and that got me, and I believe Amanda, although maybe it was Andy, um, on a panel uh, with Richard. And the point is, nobody remembers the panel, but we all remember hanging out uh, until like 4 a.m. with Richard at a, at a bar and, and sort of hitting it off in that way that you do at 
3.59 a.m. <laughs> closing. Uh, and, and, you know, I didn't think a ton of it. I, I wrote um, an article uh, in the Daily Iowan. Got to give a shout out to the, the DI where I spent a lot of great years learning from some uh, other, you know, sort of whole nother genre of brilliant writers. And um, yeah, I, I wrote something and, and it was basically like, hey, you know, these are the places where um, Florida's ideas make sense to me or to us or to our community and here's the here's the places where we differ and and you know that was really the the rise <laughs> no, no pun intended but it was the rise <laughs> of the rise of the creative class at that moment that's kind of when when rich's star was first uh taking out or really accelerating i should say it had been taking off for years before that and he and his team reached out to me when i was actually on to uh, my first stint in Europe. So I was in the Netherlands and, and they basically said, hey, we remember you wrote this article about a year ago. Um, Rich just, I guess, just enjoyed, you know, having kind of a devil's advocate. He's, he's a really smart guy. And I think that he, because he was so popular at the time, as happens with a lot of people, you get thrown in a lot of rooms where everybody is fawning over you and you're the, you know, best most recent version of sliced bread or, or whatever the analogy is and and really he just wanted kind of like a creative foil to bounce yeah. ideas off of and knew from our time at 4 a.m in the morning that i wasn't going to be shy about <laughs> disagreeing with him or you know i agree with him 92 percent of the time i think he's an incredibly smart um incredibly smart fellow but but we we really had a great few years um i did speech writing with him um, did some article writing, some book writing. So really was involved in all the sort of creative and writing projects um, with the creative class group. And that of course took us all over the country and, and outside of the country quite a bit too um, for speeches and events and consulting gigs and you know community planning sessions and meeting with CEOs and governors and arts organizations. And it was a, it was a pretty exciting few years. That's great. Thank you. Because uh, I want to say that I read Rise of the Creative Class uh, when I was living in Minneapolis. Uh, so I can't remember the exact year that it came out, but I, I thought I was in Minneapolis. Maybe maybe it already moved to Iowa City. But uh, one of the things that brings this back around to is my uh, office for my day job. I have, a, I have an office uh, in Merge, which is a co-working space in Iowa City. And a lot of yeah, that cool. was based on... <laughs> Uh, some of Florida's work as well. So it all, it's all intertwingled right now. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I mean, that, that was what was so fun about that period. And, and really it continues to this day. I mean, it keeps sort of like bearing fruit in all these different places and in sort of unexpected ways, I would say. Uh, but, but one of my favorite things and one of uh, Rich's favorite things too, was just getting to see all these places that were actually doing the stuff on the ground, because of yeah. course that's where all of our passions lie is like, what, what is the actual, physical community manifestation of all these um, big ideas and theories and whatnot. So it was, a, it was a wild go round. So when did you become a touring musician? So I moved to DC uh, after slash during this period. We, we sort of hopped around. I was, I was back in Europe for a little bit. I was in Pittsburgh for a little bit with um, Rich because he was at Carnegie Mellon for a yep. while. Um, Toronto came later, I think, although my recollections are somewhat hazy of the last little bit. But from DC, that, that's where we really landed permanently. He, he was at George Mason University. And again, I was just sort of his creative sidekick. Um, and 
that was the spot where I started uh, my first real band um, in, in the sense of being a full-time sort of working touring band um, called These United States. And I just, you know, I kind of went to him one day and said, hey man, I'm really loving this work. Um, for some reason, I feel called to sleep on people's floors across, the, across all of North America. <laughs> Do I have your blessing to uh, go on tour and we can stay in touch and we'll see if stuff works out later on and work? And he was like, absolutely, have a blast. He, he's a guitar uh, player, a really good guitar player himself. So he totally got it. And he was actually a great supporter locally in DC when our, we, we had a thing called the Federal Reserve, which was a um, kind of tongue in cheek named uh, music collective. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was a collective that sort of all lived on the wrong side of the tracks and enjoyed drinking a lot of whiskey at an ironically named place called the Wonderland Ballroom, which, as you can imagine, was neither a Wonderland nor a ballroom. <laughs> um, so the Federal Reserve started there and these United States as a band really spun off out of that collective, which also birthed a lot of other amazing touring artists from that era of, of DC. That's cool. And then... Was it while you were in the United States that you, you've played from a, so I, I'm a music nerd and you've been able to play like the, the big fun festivals, right? South by Southwest. If, if I'm remembering just Glastonbury, uh, yeah, am I, yeah, that's, Lollapalooza. That's yeah. Yeah. All those. Yeah. And then, and then I, I and like I said, then also a collection of dive bars as well. Uh, did, did you get to play some of the, like the, the fun dive bar route like when i think about like classics know, yeah yeah like 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 the 930 or like uh 7th street entry or first ave you know just oh, wait, all those all, yeah. all those you just named I, I actually thought you were gonna go iowa city direction with that uh oh well we could go gabe's and oh yeah yeah we played gabe's with uh heartless bastards actually if you know <laughs> that band um we played the mill more more than once um yeah uh, with bands like Breathe I'll Breathe and other just great acts of that era. You know, we would stop in at KRUI, of course, and played uh, Mission Creek Fest. Um, yeah, yeah. Those were actually some of the folks, um, you know, Andre Perry and Katie Roach and Andy Roach, her her younger brother, who was actually my roommate for a while in Iowa. Those are that that creative crew I've kind of stuck stuck in touch with off and on. Again, you know, like our lives kind of intertwine. Oh, that, no, but, that's great. Yeah. Katie's been a guest on the podcast. Andre's been a guest on the podcast. Um, oh man, I have to dig deeper into yeah. the archives here. You've had all the all stars. I love and, it. Uh, well, I know my, what I'm doing this. I know what I'm doing this entire weekend, Matt. I'm gonna go relive all my <laughs> golden years and just weep into a into a Saturday afternoon rainy. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. No, and I used to. Uh, uh, my son and uh, Katie's daughter are in the same grade, and I used to I used to oh, coach cool. with her husband Joe. We used to coach the kids' soccer teams. Uh, Brilliant. So Brilliant. that's. Small I think world. it's one of the things that I absolutely also love about uh, Iowa City is that there are kids on youth sports who are getting coached by Pulitzer Prize winning authors, top neurosurgeons, but right, they, they right. just know them as like, you know, uh, uh, Coach Sally or, or Coach Joe, right? And it's just like, a, it's one of the romanticized things I have about Iowa City yeah. is just a yeah. lot of a lot of like neat opportunities, but also people that just still want to help kids be kids. 
Yeah, I'll never forget um, my sophomore year, maybe um, just turning a corner in the it must have been the Memorial Union and Kurt Vonnegut is just sitting in a chair, the actual human Kurt Vonnegut is sitting in a chair by himself, just like in a hallway, just like in a, in a, you know, nondescript college hallway. He's of course, you know, preparing to like put on a big, I don't know, he had some big keynote speech or something like that, but he's just sitting there and I'm like, that guy looks familiar. And I just <laughs> walked up to him and I was like, I think I know who you are. And he just sort of raised his eyebrow. <laughs> That's about all I remember. I don't know if you said any other words to each other, but it was, it was obviously a great memory. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so music world, organizing, and economics, those start to come together because you've, you've been working on putting creative collaboratives together. Do you mind talking a little bit about, about those, like both vision and, and why you would do that and what you, what you hope to see out of it? Yeah, I mean, really, all those threads didn't come fully together until I, after my touring years, which went on for about a decade of, of you know, almost a couple hundred shows a year, um, I ended up in Colorado. You get a little bit exhausted from that lifestyle after a bit, uh, and I wanted to just kind of hang and take a deep breath for a bit, and, and I had you know, discovered all of the many beauties of, of Colorado and, and sort of hunkered down in Denver for a minute. Um, and that's where I got into kind of the music cities, music ecosystems conversation, yep. which is a, a kind of global movement, I guess you could call it, that maybe makes it sound a little highfalutin. Um, it's not like a massive movement, but it is a group <laughs> of people roughly stumbling in the same direction. Um, and that that world really fascinated me right away. And I, um, you know, basically just got really lucky again to sort of be drawn in, um, especially into a friendship with uh, this guy, Bryce Merrill, who's a pretty renowned fellow in that world. And, and he and I worked in Denver on both the city of Denver's music strategy, um, which was those kind, kinds of things were just starting to crop up around then. And then, um, we also worked on the state of Colorado's uh, music strategy for then Governor Hickenlooper, um, and that was a that was a trip because there's still to this day there are not many statewide strategies because anytime you try and do a governmental strategy, if it's statewide, it's difficult because you're trying to tie together urban, rural, suburban, different classes, different backgrounds, different geographies and landscapes, and so that that was a real inspiring learning curve and Bryce and I sort of got to do a little um, you know two-man show around the state of Colorado and just visit all these beautiful places um, you know quote-unquote middle of nowhere which is not a term I have loved um, as you can imagine most of my life I'm more of a middle middle of somewhere kind of guy <laughs> and um, we just got to visit a lot of those and then through that work um, got the attention of Bohemian Foundation which hired both of us up to Fort Collins and that's where I really started putting some more of that stuff into practice again in a way that in Fort Collins was very reminiscent for me of Iowa City to, to tie it back to that um, started a project called the Music District with uh, Bohemian Foundation and that was like really at the nexus of creative placemaking, community cohesion, artist development, economic development, workforce development, all, all these, whatever buzzword you want to throw in there, like yeah. we touched it in some way. And I think that's, I think that was maybe when I first realized the thread 
that was running through all of these different types of collaborations, which to be honest to me, hadn't really made much sense in a, in a logical career oriented sort of way. I just never thought in a logical career oriented way. I was lucky to have a bunch of wild and crazy writers as mentors. So they were like, you know, follow your muse, have a good time. Life is short. Try to make some small differences here and there if you can, but don't take yourself too seriously and certainly don't take your career too seriously. So that was where it all kind of came back together, if that makes sense. No, I love it. I, cause, um, used to be one of the things I'd coach my design teams. Uh, just that last part that you said is, uh, don't take yourself too seriously. You know, take your, take your work seriously, your work or your craft, but don't take yourself too seriously. Right. And exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I take the work very seriously, like sometimes yeah. too seriously. Um, but not myself and, and, and let, like you're saying in that sort of life design kind of sense, I again had, was just really lucky to have all these mentors at University of Iowa, whether it was like Bob Kirby or Dave Gould or all these really cool folks who really at the beginning of the literature, science and the arts degree, I don't even know to be, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know if they still have that around, but the LSA degree was something they were kind of experimenting with and they needed a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, let's say crazy guinea pigs as students <laughs> right. to sort of feed through that weird new mechanism they had. And it was a great fit for me and for a lot of the James gang folks. No, that that's cool. And, uh, I, I haven't met Dave. We're, we're actually going to have virtual coffee soon, but I'm also, uh, for right. me interested in what the, the Oberman center is, is working on, um, their, the humanities for the public good project. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so those those collaborations and as you were talking about kind of the music cities work uh and this probably would have been <laughs> like better to, I, I i might cut this out because i don't know if anybody will find this interesting but the stuff you're talking about i are, find it fascinating i say leave it in Run this, with this is where i'm super excited too because actually where andy Stoll and I really met, we were in uh, a training program for strategic doing. I'm not sure if you're, are you familiar mm -hmm. with the strategic doing framework? I'm familiar with it, but I certainly have not been trained within it. So, so yeah. you've got to enlighten me here. So the, basically it's that a lot of strategic planning is from an old era when problems were really straightforward. So you could take a lot of time, think about your strategy. And by the time you develop it, the world hasn't changed, but in an yep. interconnected complex world, everything keeps shifting even while we're working on it. And so that's an understatement. How do we have a lean business approach, like a, a lean approach to what are small experiments that we can run knowing our big goal? What do we want to do? But uh, in a stone soup way, yeah. what what contributions do people have that they can just throw in? Right. So um, looking at uh, basically asset sharing and uh ways to engage community. And that's where even looking at Iowa City, for me, you have this tremendous knowledge and these resources with the University of Iowa. And even though Iowa and Iowa City have a real healthy town and gown relationship, they're still silos. Right? Yep. How do you how do yep. you start to blend these in as like these super colliders of what might happen? And so re reimagining kind of government, private industry and community are, are like just super super nerd things. I think I get nerdy about music. I get really nerdy about ways that, that how do we, how might we create more sustainable, more exciting, more productive communities that are really, really human centered and, and not dependent on 
is a factory coming or leaving your community for its yeah. its welfare. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and that there's so much I want to respond to there yeah. because I, I love all that that whole kind of constellation of ideas. But uh, the stone soup has always been one of my favorite sort of stories slash metaphors for, yeah. for everything else good in life. Um, to me, it's that sort of community bootstrapping or whatever you want to call it, like like collaborative uh, uh, improvisation um, that is just the most fun, yep. frankly. It's what makes life most worth living is those stone soup moments. And, that, and that's very much what the James Gang was. And, and I think we youngins at the time got a lot of credit for that, but but really we couldn't have done it without some really genuine help from on high, if you will. Folks like Bob Kirby, who was sort of our central mentor and connected us with a lot. He, he was the, the godfather or whatever you want to call it. And, and you know, he for him, from one end and for us from another end, it, it actually came very much out of wanting to um, reconnect the town gown thing that that divide was I'm glad to hear you say what you just said because that divide was pretty real when I was there and, and of course that never goes away in any university right. town I've lived in several university towns at this point and you're never going to totally get rid of it and, and in part that's fine like the, a university is there to be you know, people uh, use the term ivory tower disparagingly, but that's also, the, the, yeah, that was the original intent of universities to be this like haven where people could actually retreat a little, think a little, take some time to reflect. Like it's sort of like a Zen monastery yeah. or whatever in the original conception. And I think that's really valuable. But yeah, once when you get to a certain point, you do want to tie it back to sort of everyday life. And and I and I really, I hate the idea that there's a dichotomy between a university and quote unquote real life. Like people talk a lot mm -hmm. like, oh, you've got to go do something in the real or the real world, right? Yeah, yeah. They always say, I think that's so silly, but I think that folks on both sides of that false dichotomy have maybe fed into that um, misperception a little bit. And I, and I think that's, at the end of the day, that's what Bob Kirby and Mike Brooks and all the other folks who were involved with it were really trying to get past was this false dichotomy. Um, and for us, I think it worked. And, and you know, the, the group continued on um, and still is continuing on. So, so I guess it, there was something there, but it's the, it all comes back to stone soup is what I'm Yeah. Thinking. Well, in the, from a creativity side and using creativity, because uh, I, you know, I do a lot of work in the innovation space and teach uh, mm -hmm. uh, an innovation course at Tippy, so the College yeah. of Business. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. But the, uh, try to help with both critical thinking and creative thinking and getting into those mindsets. And one of the things I say about creative thinking, it's like reverse on a car. You don't need it all the time, but when you need it, you really need it. <laughs> That's good. I like that. And if you can't, if you can't access it, right, like it's a muscle, if you haven't developed it, it's not going to work. And so um, you said Northern Illinois too. And so this is, I guess, something that's always guided me is, um, so I grew up in Rockford, uh, which, you know, uh, used to be like a middle-class dream city in, yeah. in the U S yeah. that, that a single worker for a, a, a family could afford a home, send their kids to school, uh, didn't need a college education. Right. And it was either furniture manufacturing or small fasteners, right. Because Rockford yep. used to be the screw capital of the world uh, <laughs> from a fastener perspective. Um, but as those jobs went away, they there wasn't anything there to replace them. Right? And so 
this has been a community that has been struggling for basically my entire lifetime, making sense of an old pattern that worked. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of good people that are trying to make things work. But I remember one of my economics teachers in high school, he shared with me the story and the, the short, short-ish version is there was a company that wanted to be the leading bobby pin manufacturer in the world in Rockford. Mm-hmm. And God damn it, they did it. Congratulations, <laughs> they did it. Uh, but by the time they achieved that is it was more uh, hairstyles were changing. Women didn't use bobby pins. Oh. And Right. <laughs> he he wasn't a designer, but it, it stuck with me as he like the frame. What what if somebody said our goal is to be the leading supporter of uh, hairstyles, right? Just rather yeah. than the, the the Bobby. So they focus on producing a commodity. Exactly. And, and then by the time they nailed it, the world didn't need that commodity anymore. Or even if they do, exactly. it can be easily replaced. So I think about that a lot. And, and um, you know, having kids in Iowa city, as, as one of my friends said, uh, you know, I have kin in the game. So I, I want to make sure that they're growing up in a wonderfully kind of supportive, engaging, thriving community. And so hearing about what you're talking about, that that's why so much of it's resonated with me. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, again, there's a lot I want to take yeah. into there. First of all, the only place I ever played in Rockford, Illinois was a spot called hard times which I, like popped back into my brain as you we were talking about Rockford, Illinois. And I went to Rockford a lot, like as a yeah. kid and passing yeah. through and da da da. But that was the only place I ever played a show. Um, Home of Cheap Trick. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, we did hang out with Miles Nielsen, who was Rick's son, who had yep. a great uh, recording studio and hang out there. He was an amazing musician, super cool community of folks. So, so, so Rockford has always had this great stuff going for it. Um, on the creativity end of things I, I really like your car analogy and and it's fun to how do i want to put it it's, it's always exciting to come across new or different takes on like what creativity is because it's such a such a buzzword right for right. all of us and i'm guilty i'm as yeah. guilty of it as the next creative class creative economy uh bozo down the street but <laughs> and, and i love it there's a reason it's a buzzword because there's something that's fundamentally true about it um, but but I but I try to think more in terms of like well, what does creativity really mean and a lot of the things you're talking about are associative thinking plus systems thinking plus translation I always think in terms of like translation or arbitrage or all these concepts of like how do you trade currencies and ideas across silos where they're not usually traded right and that's yep. one of the most value, like the marketplace like i still to this day love the idea of a marketplace and i don't mean like the modern hyper capitalist conception of it i mean like the old school like the bazaar where you go and like you see some biz- bizarre shit like first <laughs> french like there's bizarre stuff on every side of you um and that and that's i think where new ideas come from is being in those being being comfortable enough to move through those sort of unknown middle grounds and borderlands and marketplaces where you're like, wow, part of this is like scary and weird and different and foreign. And that's exactly why I love being here. Um, something you said made me think of that. I, 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 uh, but anyway, I, I think there's this other um, uh, component now to arts entrepreneurship. Like people talk so much about arts entrepreneurship. And I think usually that what they mean in the modern parlance is like translating business and entrepreneurial ideas into the arts and creative communities, which is great. That's like half the 
half yeah. the battle. But I think the more interesting, sophisticated work that's happening now is going in the opposite direction too and saying like, you actually need some artists and creatives like sitting around in the boardrooms or the advisory committees or the strategic planning session, like from the beginning, right? Yeah. Like if yep. you had, not, not as like a focus group that you bring in later or not as like wallpaper that you have in the background at, you know, the governor's uh, opening uh, ceremony for some creative economy announcement or something like that. But like at the table, at the leadership table from the beginning, those folks can be so valuable. And, and I think whether people explicitly call it that or not yet, that's, that's a lot of what we're seeing that I think is the most interesting work that's happening in entrepreneurship, in ecosystems, in self-empowerment, in community empowerment, um, all those kind of related concepts. Yeah, when you, when you were talking, it was making me think of also Stephen Johnson's book, Where Do Good Ideas Come From? Yeah. yeah. Right when he talked about port cities in Europe, where you did, exactly. it was because there were people from all different walks of life, different countries, different cultures colliding exactly. uh, right, exactly. in these, basically in these bars in port cities and, and new, you know, the, the notion of a slow hunch too, right? It's not an individual with the Eureka yeah. moment. It's, Hey, oh, I got the, the Phoenicians were here. Did you see how, <laughs> what their boat looked like? Ah, we could it's, add this. We could apply this. It's funny you say that. I, I, I mean, I've, obviously, I've always loved port cities for exactly that reason. I just rewatched one of my favorite movies of all time that I hadn't seen in about 10 years. Um, the 2005 version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the one that had yeah. like most deaf and yep. the, the cast is just incredible. We can get into that at some <laughs> future point, but, but there is that classic bar scene, which was kind of a nod, I think in their case to the star Wars bar scene, right. Where you're like on the, and then they, they sort of end the first movie by referring to the restaurant at the, at the end of the universe, which of course is the title of the second in that trilogy right. that became five parts by, by Douglas <laughs> Adams. And I've always, I mean, I think that's, that's another thing that's linked all the stuff that I've always been interested in is like, what is that port town? What is that, the proverbial port town or like the metaphorical Star Wars bar or like the restaurant at the end of the universe. And that's why, you know, when people casually refer to like the quote unquote flyover states or the middle of nowhere or whatever accidentally disparaging comment they make about it, I'm like, have you all ever been to the restaurant at the end of the universe? Cause it's pretty cool. Like yeah. there's some, there's some weird and some scary shit that goes on there too, but like there's some interesting ideas percolating. Yeah. Uh, switching gears a little bit in pandemic. Uh, how are you exercising your creative muscles? Oh, wow. Um, I guess in some ways, at least right out of the gate, and again, in the last month, sort of in accordance with the two two big waves of or the two big spikes of the pandemic, I, I think I've turned a lot of them inward. So, so when it first hit, I was still living in Colorado, um, in Fort Collins, and and I, I won't bore you with the backstory, yeah. but we sort of saw saw it like a slow freight train um, for about a week, and it just felt sort of terrifying and overwhelming. And a lot of us did all of the unhealthy things, the, the, the sort of, you know, binging either with like food or, or drinks or people or whatever. And that like, oh my God, I'm never going to see y'all again kind of moment or, or with ourselves. And then I think after that, like unhealthy reaction or maybe not unhealthy, but a very like natural, understandable, overwhelmed reaction that a lot of us had. 
I was just like, okay, this is not sustainable. Like I can't, you know, sit at home and like drink too much mezcal and go down deep, dark rabbit holes of, of, you know, science fiction or whatever the case may be. I, I just got back to basics. I was like, I need to get, I need to get my meditating game back in shape. I need to get my yoga game back in shape. I need to like start cooking and eating healthy again. Like really just these time honored traditions that that crop up in different societies and different places in the world over and over and over again that to me was like the only outlet for like a good way through and that really got me through the first couple months of the pandemic and um and then i moved here to arkansas and life became kind of a crazy circus again very immediately and i would say that went on for sort of the the four or five months after that and then recently in the last like month really since thanksgiving I've kind of got back to that more inward, like it's okay to stay home and read a book that you've always been curious about, or at least look at a book that's in your pile of books that you've never read, but you know that you will someday. So you just keep them there. I'm at least looking at those book titles again, yeah. even if I'm not actually cracking the cover up. <laughs> yeah. I, as I, I'm looking around and uh, my wife and I refer to some of my books as just my shame pile. It's what I- Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. I'm leaving it out because I-, I I'm going to get to it. I want to get to it. But then I, and that pile grows and then I feel bad about myself. And Yeah. Yeah. And, that's what it's there for. Right. Shame, shame you into education. Uh, and then did, it just ends up at the bottom of the dumpster with all the New Yorkers. Right. Did your, uh, did your time in Iowa city by chance overlap at all with Alex Deason? I think so. That name sounds really familiar. So jog, he was, jog my brain here. He was in the Damn Wells, and then oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Then came here for the writers program, uh, and uh, yeah, I was totally. I was talking totally. to him on the podcast, uh, early version of the podcast, and uh, just with pandemic, we were also talking about the pressure that people have put on each other about okay, you're going to be in lockdown. So it's like, you worthless piece of shit, you better develop a new skill. <laughs> like all this extra anxiety, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I was going to be a great songwriter, I better put more time in. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was well, going to learn Taylor, a new Taylor, language. Taylor Swift, is, Taylor Swift is making us all look bad at this point. So I've given up on that whole, that whole track. I'm, I'm again, and, just sort of focusing more on like, what are the things I've always wanted to do just for myself or for my immediate community? But, but then also, like I would say here, one of the things that attracted me to Arkansas is that there's this really ambitious agenda on the table right now to reinvent very large swaths of the community and not, not even reinvent, but sort of like accommodate and adapt for the new times. And they're, yep. and they're putting a lot of uh, resources and people and thought and time and spaces into arts and culture and creativity here. And so I was really attracted to it because I got to come here right away. And, you know, our organization um, here, which is called CASH, C-A-C-H-E, is the Creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange. It's quite a mouthful. Yeah. Um, we have got, because there's these great funders here who are really interested in kind of this progressive scene, and more importantly, because there's a, a grassroots scene that is demanding creative expression, social and racial and economic justice, all, all these good things that sort of were, the zeitgeist is, is evolving in general. We've got to frankly get a lot of money out to artists and organizations to sort of like commission new works and reinvent their 
business or strategic models and, and, and da, 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 which is like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a dream scenario for as rough as, as everything is at the same time. That sounds great. What part of Arkansas are you in now? Uh, Northwest Arkansas, which is Benton and Washington counties. And I am, I'm living in Rogers, which is one of the four main, there's Bentonville, Rogers, Springdale, and Fayetteville. Fayetteville is the one most folks know because it's, you know, the Iowa city of, of Arkansas or or vice versa, but it's that classic, like middle of the country, cool university town, like Lawrence, like Madison, like wherever, Fort Collins, et cetera. Um, but I, but so I get to spend time all across the region, which I really love, uh, but living in Rogers proper. Yeah. And now I, I should, I should know this, uh, but is, do you know, is the, uh, uh, the firefighter Memorial wall, is that in Fort Collins? I feel like I was last there last year for, uh, a ceremony, uh, Oh boy. Um, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, let me look here. Let's that, do this. Uh, let's do this thing. Let's I'm doing the Google thing right now. Yeah. Is that, is that uncouth in zoom podcast world? No, no, this is, this is good. You can just insert some background music while we're, while we're <laughs> Googling. <laughs> Have you? Have oh, you sorry. It was Colorado Springs. I'm sorry. It was Colorado That's Springs. Right. That's the fa- right. Yeah, yeah, the Fallen Firefighter uh, Memorial. Well, and you know, Colorado Springs and Fort Collins are very interesting because the I, I love Colorado Springs, um, but people confuse them all the time because because it's sort of an Iceland Greenland <laughs> complex where like. Fort Iowa, Collins. Ohio, Idaho. <laughs> well, but but very specifically, they sound like they're opposite because Fort oh. Collins sounds like yeah. a place where you would have a military establishment, right? Right, it's like the Air Force Academy. <laughs> That's actually in Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs sounds like this sort of hippie-esque whatever it's like springs and da 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 yeah. and like that's fort collins it's, it's sort of the the liberal university town fort, yeah. fort collins like the easiest way to think about it is kind of like boulder 20 years ago and and okay. i mean that in a really good way like yep. before boulder became and i love boulder too don't get me wrong but like it is hard to have much fun or time there if you don't have a big pile of money at this right point. so right. Fort Collins is kind of like a slightly more slightly uh more affordable um kind of college town version anyway i could talk colorado geography no, that's that's great uh it's just going to mention to you too like just a covid casualty but do, i don't did you see that the mill shut down yeah yeah oh man that yeah i don't even know where to start with that like i i spent so many nights um and and all of us did yeah. you know watching pieta brown and Bo ramsey from like eight feet away and just like jaws drop, like, holy shit. I I really do think a lot of that seeded a lot of those nights at the mill, which is honestly where the James gang hung out a ton, probably more than just about anywhere else, except for the airliner. And that was mostly for the cheap pizza. Right. (laughs) Uh, But the mill, yeah. I mean, what an important place in in that town's entire history. So what's going to become of that? Do you know what the... I don't know. I talked to uh, Marty, who's one of the co-owners, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and he, what they did was they basically tried, what's a restaurant commodity? We will auction that off to get rid of that. Uh, anything that's really like the 
the mill brand, like the signage, all of the the bric-a-brac on the walls, uh, some of those elements, they, those are in storage. So we might yeah. see the mill brand end up mm. in a different venue. Oh, let's hope so. But I don't know like that space, which in, you know, cause it was such a great room, right? That, uh, the back room and they said, I uh, worked with folks when I was an undergrad. We had a sketch comedy show, and we had our writers' meetings in the, oh, the back man. of the mill. Totally, there's so many good things that happened in yep. that room. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and so many good shows that I saw there. And I remember a few years ago, I saw the comedian uh, uh, Neil Hamburger. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And cool. you know, and he's such an abrasive uh, personality, right? But uh, Greg. Uh, the the real actor is really nice guy. I was talking to him after, and I said, you "Just why'd you come to Iowa City?" Play, and he goes, "This is one of the best rooms in the world." It is, and it's like it puts a little hug around you. And it was funny because yeah. he's, you know, he's almost like a Don Rickles esque <laughs> in character. And then he just like here's a guy just talking really warmly about the room. So, uh, that, and actually, that's a brilliant um, phrase. It puts a little hug around you because one of I, I tell people this all the time when we're talking about like venue design, stage design. You know, I've spent a lot of time at this point in like event yep. production, festival production, etc. And I always encourage folks to think more in terms of a horizontal room rather than a shotgun room which is most people's initial most people just kind of assume because it's the majority of what they've been to because it's that's how we've always done it <laughs> yeah that you do a shotgun you put a stage yeah. at one end you put a bar at the other end and you, it's like a shotgun shack between them but but actually horizontal rooms are the best because both for audience and performer because as an audience it gives you the most amount of sort of square footage to be closest to the stage right, right? there's like yeah. three sides to the stage essentially or sometimes four if you do like a true like theater in the round kind of thing and and as a performer it's the same advantage which is that you get to interact on three sides of yourself and sort of take different energy from different parts of the room and give it back to other different parts of the room and da, da, da. so I, I could go on about room design all no day. that's the mill, that's the mill did it right i mean that that was yeah amazing. and that's I, played on that stage quite a bit and I loved and I saw even more shows from the audience there and I loved being on both sides of that exchange that's what I was thinking if they if they build somewhere else or take over to to go like you said you know kind of kind of more more wide than the narrow yeah, would be great exactly. uh I a while back on the podcast I talked to Ken Goodman uh mm -hmm. from New Duncan Imperials and uh you know Pravda Records and uh he told oh, me yeah. So I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, uh, you know, when, cause he, he said there's certain rooms and he said the mill was one of them. Uh, Gabe's is another, the continental in Austin. There are certain rooms you'll go play because you just know it, it, it itself facilitates a good vibe. Exactly. Right. And, exactly. And he said, when you walk into a room, like you haven't been in this bar, just even like set your gear, you already know if they've done it right or not. Oh yeah. Did, did you feel that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like residue. Like you just like, you either see, it's like the equivalent of smoke stains on the walls or like beer stains on the floor or or you, you feel the residue of years or, or sometimes decades worth of gathering, which I think is one of the really heartbreaking things about the current moment is all yeah. these places that just had built up years and years of history and layers of residue. Now, now, to be fair, like in some places, and, and I wouldn't count the mill in this, if there is a bright side to some of this sort of evolution of what's going on in music and live event space and whatnot, there's also 
there's also a dark side to the music industry, the entertainment industry, et cetera. There's also a lot of bad shit that's happened in a lot of those rooms, right? Whether misogyny, racism, excess of of drugs or whatever. And I'm not one to point fingers, but like there's places where like you walk into a place and you're like, ooh, this feels like the residue is there and it's not all good. Like there there are some dark things that have happened in here. Um, And so I think in some ways, like some of those places will for better be forced to reinvent their models, whether it's economic models and how much they pay artists or gender equity yeah. uh, or, you know, sort of racial and, and, and community relations. And that. there's a lot of things like people are going to have to rethink if they want to stay relevant in the modern era. Um, the mill was not one of those places where I ever felt any of those bad residues, like right. that was a place that was just like, yeah, everybody was accepted there because it was such a fun intersection of like, townies and regulars and 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 weird writers and folks from like the medical school coming over and like downtown businesses it was it was that it was that marketplace or that star wars bar or that yep. portal between different worlds that we were talking about right right what, one of my closest friends from growing up in rockford and we both did our undergrad here and then both ended up back in iowa city but so he was more of a freestyle bike guy uh but so we were usually hanging out more with the skateboard crowd and well cool. And cross-country runners and freestyle bikers. So there was already a weird mix in our high school. We were just like just goofy kids then. Uh, but we come back. He's he's a his PhD is in micro or he's a microbiology researcher uh, in uh, immunology and virology. His PhD is in coronavirology. So wow. a lot of stuff going on right now. But wow. he and other other uh, lab guys that he's friends with uh, people not just got you know uh sure yeah, yeah yeah but the lab crowd would be and then like designers and music and so many different nights there where we're exchanging almost ideas from from here's a deep science perspective here's exactly here's an art perspective or exactly. here's something i've heard similar that answers this from a design perspective and we'd have so many good conversations plenty it was beer fueled so how no <laughs> if some yeah. of those ideas might not yeah. have been great but there's yeah that's one of the things i miss that, yeah there's a little bit of triage that happens with the good ideas you don't necessarily <laughs> get to keep all of them that you have to sort of pay the angel's share if you will right. uh yeah too yeah, many beer. i mean in a sense that's what the james gang was all about just to just to harp on the iowa city connection yeah. here and and really that's what it on the nerdy side it grew out of that literature science and the arts degree combined with the fun let's say bohemian vibes of living on iowa avenue in that era um and those two things combined were a powerful source for beer and pizza consumption but also idea production you do you have any uh because they're in the lore a little bit the james gang cards do you have any james gang cards anymore that have survived all your moves oh like 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 we mean business cards yeah the uh because i was even reading in uh, nate staniforth's book when andy reached out to him just like this kind of cryptic card yeah, from the totally, james gang totally yeah we did we did a lot of stuff like that just kind of for fun just because we were like we don't want to look like a traditional nonprofit. not that there's anything wrong with that right. Nonprofits have great strengths but frankly their strengths are not what ours were and right so we were like we need to sort of aesthetically um, vibe wise brand. I don't think we ever would have used the word branding, but we were just like, we need to put off a different kind of vibe as a group of folks. And that, hence the name itself, like it was, it was kind of a self-deprecating 
um, like like you know Wild West kind of thing meets you know rock and roll. There there yeah. obviously was a James. It actually came from William James, who was sort of all of our heroes. Uh, he was all of our hero. I don't know how to construct yeah. that sentence as a writer, but um, <laughs> we were big fans of William James. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. And and sort of pragmatism and that exactly what you were saying about strategic doing. Yeah. Um, that that really that really fueled everything that we were up to um, along with beer and pizza. And I forget where I was going with this, but I'm sure there was some, something there. Well, it was, it was, uh, the, the James gang, uh, the, the bringing things together, beer and pizza. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the mill as a sort of great metaphor for the marketplace where different communities and different nationalities and backgrounds and disciplines come together and just kind of like, get loose in a good yeah. way throw, throw some ideas back and forth have some new ideas as a result yeah so i'm really hoping some version emerges that that spirit can be continued but uh it won't well, here, be in that here's building. my here's my challenge to you when you talk to our our mutual friend uh mr gould yeah uh, you tell you tell him to 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 buy that room for all of us i don't know how he's gonna do it i don't know either <laughs> he's gonna but i i trust that he can cobble together some resources from the larger community and tell them that we'll all come back there for a big uh reunion and and open it up as like you know uh some kind of memorial hall to all of our bad ideas bad ideas awesome. memorial hall how about that there we go there we go yeah i like it um one of the things I do like to check in with guests too is the notion of advice. Uh, so sometimes it's good advice that we we may have received or wisdom that somebody gave to us that we still kind of unpack as we get older, like you find it still applicable and profound. Or sometimes it's more like Austin Cleon, still like an artist when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Is there is there advice you wish you would have had when you were younger or advice that... Uh, is really been helpful to you that you might share with the audience? Uh, honestly, I feel like I got all the best advice humanly possible from so many people. I, I really feel lucky the older I get in reflecting on the really profound mentorship that I that I had access to. And and, and that's a that's a privilege, right? And I'm not yeah. blind to that luxury of of uh, being a white dude in America that we're all sort of waking up to collectively a little right. bit more now. So, so I don't take that for granted at all, but I still feel very fortunate for it. And, and, and really actually to have had mentorship from a lot of different people who didn't look like me. Um, there were a lot of white dudes in the mix, don't get me wrong, but yeah. like another really powerful mentor of mine was a writing teacher in high school named Art Saldana, who, who was a Mexican immigrant who um, came to the States at the age of 18, didn't speak a word of English, and by 28, 10 years later, he had a master's degree in English literature. And he was a guy who taught me the connection between William Shakespeare and the Rolling Stones and Carlos Castaneda and all of the folks who he sort of idolized. Um, so I, I could I could give you a whole nother hour yeah. on Art, Art Saldana, <laughs> but, but suffice it to say when, I, I'm now realizing I get, so my real answer here is that I, I got one of my best favorite piece of advice from a wall, which I'll tell you in a second. But the, maybe the second one was from a chalkboard. Uh, the role, I guess technically the Rolling Stones by way of a chalkboard, but I walked in Art Saldana's class once my junior year of high school and written on the, you know, it was a lesson on Shakespeare that day and written in huge letters cursive across the entire board. 
It's just, you can't always get what you want. And the entire rest of the week's lessons was just our riffing on the stones and Shakespeare and the connections between Whitman and Dylan and blah, blah. I could go on for a long time about it, but, but I, you know, you can't always get what you want is a pretty good one that sort of remains <laughs> top five. And, and while the source of that, you know, the band itself is maybe problematic in some ways, or maybe I don't agree with all the choices they made. Uh, still, if there's a good message, sometimes I think it's worth putting up with the faults of the messenger. And I've learned that over and over again in life uh, and tried to hang on to those good messages that right. even messengers bring and, and carry forward the good parts of it. But, uh, but I think my favorite ever um, was walking into an art gallery in Washington, DC when I lived there and was working with Rich and I went into the Corcoran Gallery. And one of the great things about DC is all these free public spaces, right? This is another inspiration of mine. Yeah. It's like access for everyone and anyone who's willing to walk in to knowledge, inspiration, creativity, and whether that's a park like a national park or a city park or a museum or a library. Like those are my heroes in the world or those institutions and the people who make them happen, who, who are giving that public, um, whatever you want to call it, like the, the building blocks of humanity that we all sort of swap back and forth. And so I walked into the Corcoran and I had never heard of this guy named Fritz Scholder, uh, a, a pretty, I would find out later, pretty famous, um, Native American, American Indian um, artist uh, from the Southwest who, who really transformed how we look at that particular genre, quote unquote, of art, basically by saying like, this is not a genre. You can't lump all Native American art into one bucket and say it's all about over-romanticized, exoticized portraiture and, you know, noble figures that oh, by the way, we killed them all off, but now we're gonna romanticize what we think they looked like, even though it's completely in inaccurate and condescending. He was a guy who kind of brought Native American art into this more forward-looking, in some cases, much more abstract, impressionist, psychedelic, interesting, real, like everyday yeah. sort of um, realism combined with surrealism. And, and the only thing, that was in the place where the artist statement would usually be on that wall in the Corcoran Gallery was just a quote from him that just said, we must believe in everything because we know so little. And that was like the statement for the show. And I was like, whoa, like there was something about it that just gave me goosebumps. It still yeah. does when I think about it. And, and I, there's something like really profound in that that I love because it's such a great little like Zen Cohen or like a little Maxim or whatever you want to yeah. call it. That, you can think about it very differently based on kind of like the syntax of the sentence and the words in it and, and all the different meanings you can read in each individual word. You think about it differently at different points in life. And I think that's the, those are the things that really stick with me is the things that are sort of open to reinterpretation, like a great song or like a great quote or whatever. Right, right. Oh, that's awesome. We must believe in everything because we know so little. It's yeah, like, that, is that a, like, even now I'm like, is that a like condemnation? Like, is that, is that saying like we're condemned because we have such limited knowledge? Like that's our only choice. Or is that like the most hopeful? Right. Is it an optimistic command that we, exactly. we have to believe in this? We have to, or, or is it just like an existential matter of fact? Like, look, this is not good or bad. It's just like, that's just how life is. Like we don't, we don't know, know very much. much so we got to believe so, in things, right? Yeah. 
So yeah, I try to great. remember that anytime I talk with somebody whose viewpoint I may not necessarily understand from yeah. the very get go of the conversation or whatever that, you know, we all have these crazy systems of belief that are almost inexplicable, no matter where we're coming from, and no matter how much science or religion or dogma of this or philosophy of that we think is behind it. It's only it's one view on the universe, you know, and I think um, it's valuable to be able to hold a, a bunch of different ones. <laughs> right. Between each right. Other. Yep. Jesse, thank you so much for spending the time. It was a, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. This is a great, great conversation. Let's uh, let's continue it with uh, Dave Gould in the bad ideas <laughs> Memorial hall. Uh <laughs> in Iowa City, Iowa. Is that on Burlington? I'm trying to remember the street the, that that sits on, right? The mill is on Burlington, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I remember that, but yeah, I'll see you there. It sounds great. Thank the, the you. Restaurant, the restaurant at the end of the universe. Love it. Take care. Awesome. You too, man. Bye.